0: This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Thanks for tuning in. Today's episode has been carefully curated from the Top of Mind archive. And there's a lot to choose from. We've been going in-depth with guests on the air every weekday since 2015, searching for new perspectives and ideas. I hope what you hear today makes you think about your world a little differently and sparks satisfying new conversations with the people in your life. Let's dive in. Did you know there is a Grammy Award for the Best Album Notes? That's the writing that comes along with an album. Could be an essay, some kind of introduction to the songs. Someone actually gets an award for that, and often it is not a member of the band. This year's Best Album Notes Grammy went to music critic Bob Mayer for a special box set of music by The Replacements. This is Albu, You, argu- arguably the replacement's biggest hit. But this grittier-sounding version of the new box set is apparently much closer to the mix the band intended when it came out in the late 80s, which Bob Mayer explains in his Grammy-winning album notes for the box set, which is called Dead Man's Pop. And we've got Bob Mayer on the line to talk about it. Hi there. Congrats on your Grammy.
1: Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me.
0: As I understand it, the replacements never really got much love from the official music, you know, like awards industry, right? They never got a Grammy. And so the first one they get is actually yours for the notes (laughs) that you wrote.
1: It is a... (laughs) It is a bit ironic. Well, if funnily enough, the replacements were, you know, they were kind of alternative music pioneers. They lasted basically the decade of the 80s and broke up just before uh, the rise of Nirvana and alternative music really became a kind of mainstream, uh, you know, genre. But uh, they, in the very last period of their sort of uh, being together, they got nominated in 1990 for a Grammy Award for a very short-lived alternative music award. So this is <laughs> technically, although, you know, they they were nominated once, they didn't win. And so 30-some years later, um, they win sort of uh, by proxy with me taking the award, actually. But yeah, they were never a group that was really sort of... uh, industry favorites or favorites of industry award shows but obviously their their lasting impact has been more on the bands that have kind of taken their influence or uh you know people have really just kind of are still discovering the band so it's it, their legacy is not the typical one i guess of most mainstream groups
0: right so it's only fitting that their only grammy would be for the album now <laughs> right. so was this was this something that you were aspiring to as a music music critic like you're writing the essays for this box set and you're thinking i'm gonna do some grammy winning work here and oh that's a good turn of phrase that's gonna win me a grammy
1: well no i mean for me uh, this this project and my involvement was really an outgrowth of um a book i wrote about the band their biography which i spent many years uh you know probably almost a decade of my life researching and, and putting together it was published in 2016 did pretty well as a new york times bestseller won some awards and so On the back of that, having sort of spent, as I like to say, you know, enough time researching the replacements that I could have actually gotten a couple real PhDs, um, I proposed to the band, it's their label, that we go through the archives and start doing a series of reissues and archival things of unreleased material and, you know, sort of putting it out there, capitalizing on, you know, the band's reputation has really grown since they broke up in the 20 years since they broke up. And they did a brief uh, reform briefly uh, in 2013, 2014. And so it seemed like their their vaults hadn't really been dug through. So in 2017, we started doing a series of these projects. First one was a live record called Live at Maxwell's. Uh, an unreleased concert performance from 1986. Uh, and then the second one was Dead Man's Pop. The first one did well enough that we could get a little more ambitious. And one of the things in the replacement's history, one of the sort of, I think, few uh, regrets, they weren't a band with a whole lot of regrets or a band that looked back, but the mix of their 1989 album, Don't Tell a Soul, had been kind of handed off to a professional mixer and away from the producer of the album, Matt Wallace, and away from the band. And so there had always been some thought of, let's put out a version of this kind of unvarnished as the band Band had recorded it and then as the band really had wanted it mixed and so we did that that was kind of the the, the, the cornerstone of or the groundwork for this box set and then so- of course they they had recorded some other material and there was a live concert from the period so we we had enough to create a a, a pretty handsome package. And of course, when you have a, a box set as big as that and a story is kind of convoluted as this, it, it required some explanation and hence my liner notes.
0: Let, okay, so let's. Uh, I, I want to circle back to the pretty um, remarkable story of how the material for this box set actually. Um, came to be because it really is right. a very interesting story and uh, and and the subject of the of one of the essays that you write for the album notes. but if we could just talk a little bit about the process so you're telling it sounds like the reason you got tapped to write the album notes in this case was because you've actually you wrote a book obviously about them and then right. you uh, I guess the band and or their legacy, keepers have tried right. like trust you. And so you've become one of the keepers of the legacy and been involved yeah. in. And so you were actually involved in helping to put this album together. Therefore, you also got to write the album notes. Is that usually how it goes? Like how how would album notes? I, I mean, I'm just so surprised that it's not always the artist writing the album
1: notes. Well, you know, it is, so with some artists, it is someone like, say, Elvis Costello, who's had his catalog reissued numerous times he writes extensive detailed and pretty brilliant liner notes, but, you know, it, it really does depend on the artist and sometimes an artist will write an introductory essay and they'll let a, a journalist kind of do the heavy lifting of the, of the making of the album kind of stuff. So there's any number of, of different ways, you know, it's done in, in my case, because I was so close to the process and the project and had had sort of done the, the legwork, uh, you know, just in doing the book, it sort of made sense, but I've, I've done liner notes for other artists, you know, from, the, the Dixie Chicks to Al Green to all kinds of people, and those opportunities come completely different ways. I mean, I did a liner notes for a Dixie Chicks best of. I had never, except one sort of middling review of them, had never written about them, and their management approached me to do it. Uh, wait, wait, how,
0: how, how does that even work then? And do you do it posthumously, <laughs> well, right? Like, do you? Well, I mean, not posthumously, but anonymously. Do you? Do you actually? Well, no.
1: Well, you know, it, it usually it's with most of these, there's a, you know, there's a kind of an apparatus management of the band is usually involved sometimes depending on the artist, the, the artists are more deeply involved in reissue projects and, and some less so, but usually there's a kind of consensus between the label, the management and the band as to who they want to tap to write the liner notes. Uh, and, you know, so usually they, you know, if you have a reputation or you've done liner notes before, if you have some special connection to to the artist or the album, they'll kind of, you know, uh single you out and say, Hey, would you be interested in doing this? Um, you know, with the replacements, as I say, it's a little bit more I'm I'm part of the right. part of the replacements family. But but yeah, you know, I think so- mostly and most it's it's music journalists I, I think who are who are doing this. Sometimes you get sort of celebrities and and sometimes you get the artists themselves.
0: So but okay so I'm, uh, the Dixie Chicks one that you described where you'd only ever <laughs> right. written one middling review of them. <laughs> right. So the management's right. like we need somebody who can put sentences together in a way that will that you know that sounds nice and maybe this guy's in our price range. I I mean I don't know I assume they pay you <laughs> and then but then so so do they say here's what we want to say now make it sound pretty or do you like, how do you even know what to write yeah. on the line well, usually, notes? Well usually.
1: I think in a lot of cases, it depends on the project in the Dixie Chicks case. It was kind of a general greatest hits best of. Hmm. So in that case, they're looking for a, uh, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a kind of general release that, you know, people are going to buy in mass. So they, what they want usually for liner notes, like that is a more general overview, big picture kind of thing. You talk about the songs, talk about the history of the band up to that point, uh, but it's pretty basic with other projects, depending on, you know, what it is, if it's a little deeper dive into the catalog, if it's a, if it's a more obscure core, Corner of the of the recorded history you're exploring, as it was with this with this replacements project, then you're telling more of a narrative story. I think, and you're doing interviews. You're doing. Uh, sometimes you do it formatted as an oral history. Sometimes it's more of a kind of a series of essays, which is sort of what this was as well. So I think it really depends on uh, what the package is itself, what the audio is. If it's you know a greatest hits or a live album, or in some cases and and most cases, which uh, for the for the packages that get nominated for That's album notes. It's usually the real deep dive, you know, multi-disc packages with uh, you know extremely uh, authoritative or definitive or long booklets, or sometimes in in actual cases hardbound books that accompany these.
0: Wow, right? Okay, so that would be more like the box set, or like what you've done here with the replacements Dead Man's Pop, where it's a collector's edition. And how many words did you write? I mean, these are pretty long essays that you've included. Then where this is not just the kind of thing that would fit on the flap of the CD.
1: Right. Yeah, no, no, definitely not. I mean, there's, there's in this case, there's the the main essay was probably somewhere between 10 to 12,000 words. The secondary essay was another three or 4,000. So, you know, pretty sizable. But, you know, as I say, I've written, you know, 50 1,000 word kind of notes uh, for, for more general greatest hits. And in some cases, I I have I known not not that I've written myself. I've known pr- people who've written 40,000 words, you know, book length uh, things to accompany hmm. packages. So it can really range, and it really does depend on on what it is and what the kind of purpose I guess is of right. Of, of, of the project. Well, speak,
0: speak to speak to that point if you would for me, Bob Mayer, and let me just let people know I'm speaking to a Grammy winner. He won this year's Grammy for Best Album Notes, <laughs> which is an actual thing that you can win a Grammy, um, and he won it for the album notes he wrote for uh, a special box set of music by the replacement. It's called Dead Man's Pop. Who even reads the album notes? Like, what's the point? What is the purpose of including them when really it's the music that matters?
1: Well, you know, I think it's context. And I think when you get into so really the history, it's funny, I found out a bit more about this since I was nominated. You know, the 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 best album notes Grammy really you would think it kind of is an odd sort of uh, award, but it actually goes back to the early 60s. At that time, it was really um, the heyday of the LP and the vinyl album, and oftentimes in those days, the sleeve would be accompanied by a note, and and that's where the notes expression comes from. It really was a shorter kind of introduction or thought or message, generally from the artist, sometimes from the producer, sometimes anonymously from the record label, just giving a little context about, uh, you know, what the album was. And then, of course, over time, as the LP sort of faded as a format and CDs came to be, you know, obviously you're shrinking down the format and there's less use or sometimes need for that kind of uh, that kind of information. And so really the Album Notes Award and Album Notes in general uh, really became the province of these bigger box sets, the historical recordings, the deep dives into artist catalog, uh, you know, various artist surveys or surveys of a particular scene or era. And that's where kind of I think the 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 album notes and and as an art, as an art form is kind of flourished, in that it creates a, a, a whole new perspective or a, is a, an accompanying piece for the audio as you're reading along. Sure you can listen and hear these tracks, but when you've got say hundred tracks as we do or almost on this box at 70 80 tracks uh and and, and a story that stretches multiple recording sessions i think to have that kind of context to have the story behind the music really becomes an essential part and can not only sort of explain but really enhance the listening experience
0: so tell us a little bit about the backstory then <laughs> um behind the 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 these um uh Sorry, we had a little bit of back feed there. But um, tell us a little bit about the backstory then of this album, of these tracks on this Replacements album. For um, and if you could tell it in a way that people might understand who who are not like super big fans of the Replacements, it, it starts with sure. the with the with the notion that, and then we'll play a couple of tracks. But it starts with the the fact that the most popular Replacements, the most commercially successful Replacements album. Um, it was one that the band itself sort of had a different vision for and kind of regretted, right? You were referring to that earlier.
1: Yeah. So so really, uh, just briefly, replacements were, you know, kind of like I say, a post-punk band, pioneers of alternative music. They were on the indie rock scene contemporaries of R.E.M. and bands like that throughout the 80s. The first half of their career, uh, they were on their hometown indie label, Twin Tone Records, out of Minneapolis. By the mid eighties, as the the scene is becoming more burgeoning and sort of potentially popular, they signed to Sire Records, Warner Brothers, a big major company. Um, And they released a couple of records, uh, which were again, critically acclaimed, but sort of commercially fell short. So they went in and recorded their um, seventh album, their their third for Warner Brothers, was called Don't Tell a Soul. And they were faced at that point, uh, having been a band for almost a decade, a band constantly knocking at the door of success, but never really sort of coming over or breaking through. And so this album uh, was in many ways a a departure for them. It was more ambitious in terms of the songs that Paul Westerberg, the the lead singer and songwriter was writing. And so they began recording it uh, first in Bearsville, New York, with one producer who they fired. They went to Los Angeles with the ultimate producer, Matt Wallace, and made this record. And they were very happy with it, but as kind of commercial insurance, the record label and their management suggested that rather than let Matt Wallace finish mixing the album, that they handed off to a professional kind of hit making mixer by the name of Chris Lord Algie, who was a very competent and very successful guy at that time in, in radio, uh, you know, mixing songs that were hits on the radio. But in, in letting him mix it, I think the sort of album got away from their original intention. And even though it was at the time in 1989, it had the, their biggest sort of radio hit, a minor hit, I'll Be You, which you played, and was their biggest selling album. It's the, it's the album that sort of eventually became the most maligned, in a sense, because the, the sound of the album was so tied and fixed to a moment in 1989 and how records sounded there with a certain kind of production aesthetic or mixing aesthetic and so i think over the years even though it, as i say it was their best selling album and their most successful in a way it was also their most you know sort of maligned misunderstood mm-hmm. and and there was and and it in a sense its failure uh, it's ultimate failure kind of led to the group breaking up slowly, but surely over the next year or so. So it's always been something that for the band was, well, could we ever get a chance to really present our version and our vision of this record? And so a few years ago, um, we kind of started the process through a kind of accidental discovery at the end of the band's original sessions. Um, as it was their want, they did some weird things and spirited away some of the, the mixtapes uh, of Matt Wallace's original mix. Mix. And and they went to the and the guitarist took them and left them in his basement for thirty years. Nobody knew where they were. And a few years ago, his wife uh, was down there, and she said, "Oh, you know, I found these tapes. What are they?" And so I was kind of dispatched to Minneapolis to figure out what they were. And it turns out it was Matt Wallace's original mix of the album, as the band had intended. Not quite a finished version, but certainly a template for how the record could have sounded. And so over the next couple of years, as we were sort of going through the process of starting this reissue series with the band, it really became clear that this could be a really neat opportunity uh, and unique in kind of musical terms of creating a whole new version of a new mix of this and making that kind of definitive version the the one that the band really wanted and probably should have. It could have been released back in 1989. And so the real
0: so the so that original uh, producer, Matt Wallace, then got to come back in and sort of finish up what he started for this. Exactly. Race. Exactly.
1: Huh. 29, 29 years and six months, uh, wow. 29 years and six months later, so to speak, he, he got a chance to, uh, to do that. And, uh, and yeah, it was a sort of a unique circumstance to say, you know, you don't usually get get that opportunity too much, uh, yeah. you know, to, to do that.
0: Well, I can see why this required a lot of exposition in your album notes in order to kind of explain all of these twists and turns. It's a really great story. I want to just give people a tiny little taste of the contrast then. Um, so here's the lead track on the original album, Don't Tell a Soul, which again came out in 1989. It was... Um, and it was, it, well, people will hear it. It's a little bit more kind of like polished and big. Um, and then we'll hear the contrast. The show, the show, the show, the okay, now here is a bit of the version mixed by the original producer who came back and did his version of the album, Matt Wallace. Is a banjo in there <laughs> in that second version
1: <laughs> that is a that is a banjo in the second version which was was present but almost completely inaudible in the uh, in the original thing and you know um you know for people who don't know mixing is kind of the final process of a record you know you record there's a producer who records oftentimes the producer will mix but sometimes the, the there's a mixing engineer who does the sort of final work which is basically choosing out essentially what to leave out, what to leave in, what to turn up, what to turn down, what to sort of blend together. And, um, you know, it's it's a lesson, I think, in this case, particularly that most people don't think of mixing, you know, the average sort of listener, but it can make, as you hear, uh, a huge impact, because it really is about sort of ultimately making kind of editorial choices in the sonic sense about what what goes into a song or a finished track. And so, uh, you know, it's one of those things where it really in this case, particularly, I think, uh, really creates a, a, or sheds a completely different light on, on on this record and this process. And not just what the record was, but what the band's intention was, you know, so I think it's, it's, it's a pretty uh, reinvention might be too strong a word, but it is a it's like For for us, it was like lifting a a a veil, or as as Paul the the Westberg the singer put it, sort of taking all the goop that was on the record off, and underneath, you could finally see, you know, this 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 really beautiful thing that's that's that was buried beneath all this layer of stuff.
0: The replacements, as I understand it, have a very dedicated fan base, a very outspoken fan base, and this is an important addition to the replacements. collection of of music what has been the response from the you know the fans of the replacements
1: well that's that's been a really fascinating thing and we, it was something we knew would be a kind of loaded proposition that even if this record was you know uh, some people loved it some people hated it it was misunderstood maybe its, re, it's reputation didn't sort of you know age as well but when you hear something and you've heard it in a certain way for 30 years, it's very hard to unhear it. Um, so that was my concern going in. But our, uh, our, our sense of what people's response has been based on the sales, based on the critical appraisal, and based on just sort of fan commentary is that most people are really shocked and ple- pleasantly surprised by how different the record it is. I mean, a lot of times with these, you know, kind of, quote, unquote, unmixed or alternate mixed projects, Um, you know, the differences are so subtle that you'd really have to know and and really have to kind of seek out those differences. But I think in this case, with this record, particularly, um, it was a pretty radical difference. Uh, And and not just in terms of the music, but again, I think it changes the replacement story in a sense, at least from a creative viewpoint Mm -hmm. that, you know, they weren't trying to quote unquote sell out by doing this, you know, radio mix, or they weren't you know, going so far off the rails musically that, in fact, there was a very classic-sounding typical uh, Replacements record there, but it was just sort of hard to hear beneath all the effects and the and the mixing tricks and all the stuff that had been done to it. So, so yeah, it's been, you know, not 100% everybody loves it, but most people have been just sort of shocked and surprised. You know, there's sort of the camps of people who, get, who can't unhear the original version. They like it. But mostly it's people who really didn't like the, the previous version and, and really love this new version because it sounds much more. like the band that they're familiar with and they love
0: but mayor if i could just finally ask you to put your music critic and music fan hat on for a moment and address the elephant in the room which is the fact that we're all um, (laughs) streaming and downloading now i can't remember the last time i actually read liner notes (laughs) i just look up the you know all i can do is really look up the lyrics or there maybe is a little bit of information attached to that youtube video i'm listening to so so what do you think is the future of album notes
1: well, you know, that's one of the big questions in terms of the, you know, the age of Spotify and, and, and YouTube and all that stuff, but particularly with the streaming services, is the question not just of liner notes, but of album credits, musician credits, you know, where does all that stuff go? That's important information and valuable stuff and really part of the, what had been part of, you know, uh, album packaging and even CD packaging for many years. I think you know for for people like me who do the more sort of descriptive longer essays and these types of album notes that still exists because that's really still a physical medium—the big deep dive box sets and so forth. You know, the people who are really fans who want that stuff—they still are also attached to the physical object, and so they're going out and buying these um, super deluxe box sets. And in a weird way, uh, the more people, the majority of people, have gone to streaming, and the less physical product has become, you know, a regular part of, of of everyday listening and consumption. The niche market for that has grown and become even more, you know, sort of dramatic. So now you get these box sets that are, you know not just one, two, three, four CDs, but 10, 15, 20 CDs Mm -hmm. with big books and attached to them. But, you know, that's one side of it, but it is, you know, I don't have an answer for that, but that is a big question and a big debate as we go more and more towards sort of, you know, a, a, a physical product-free world in a streaming world is where is the place for not just album notes, but the proper musician credits and the information that can be stored as metadata or included in, 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 you know, part of the streaming service package. So, and, and what's so it's lost? Still to be determined. What,
0: what do you think is lost if, if we no longer flip open and can see all of that on the inside cover of a
1: CD? Well, I think it's an immersive experience when you have all that stuff, when you, have a, when you have a physical package, or if you can replicate that, you know, by offering liner notes, album credits, etc., visuals, uh, via this, the digital platforms. I think it's just when you have all that stuff, you're more immersed in the music, you're more immersed in the music, the story, the context, anything that can enhance, I think, the experience um, as a listener, as a consumer, as an appreciator of this art or this band or this story, I think... That all adds to to what you're getting out of out of the actual art, which is you know primarily and fundamentally the music. But you know nothing exists in a mat in a vacuum, and I think uh, there is there is a lot to be said for sort of. Uh, you know, for album art, for album credits, for liner notes, for, you know, reading even the acknowledgements and stuff like that. That's a world that people used to sort of disappear into and, and really enjoy. And it was part of the experience of listening to music. And certainly a lot of that's been lost, but I don't think it's necessarily lost forever. And I think, you know, once the once the systems catch up and 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 there's a way to present all this stuff, whether it's physical or hopefully digital, then I think, you know, everyone and the experience will be better for it.
0: Bob Mayer is a music critic, winner of this year's Grammy for Best Album Notes for Dead Man's Pop, which is a box set of music by The Replacements. Mayer is also author of a book about The Replacements called Trouble Boys. It's been great talking with you. Thanks again for your time.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. More great conversations from the Top of Mind archive are coming up. Thanks for taking time today to tune in to Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. If you or someone you know is a healthcare worker, by this point in the pandemic, you are probably all too familiar with the incredible stress they have been under on the front lines of the fight against COVID-19. Even before all of this, though, nurses were under a tremendous amount of pressure. And according to some new analysis, they were at much higher risk for suicide and remain so. Christopher Fries is a professor of nursing and health management at the University of Michigan. He studies nursing well-being, and he's also a nurse. He's with us on the line. Professor Fries, welcome.
2: Julie, it's great to be with you.
0: You found that female nurses, more so than male nurses, were at especially elevated risk for suicide. Why would that be?
2: Right. That's what we found, and it's a fairly consistent finding in some of the earlier work Uh, What we think is is at play here is really the combination of multiple stressors that female nurses might particularly be at risk for. That includes not only the job stressors, but the increased role of caregiving for children, for loved ones, parents, et cetera, that female nurses uh, may be disproportionately uh, carrying as a relative to male nurses.
0: Has the job itself changed in any way, become more stressful for nurses?
2: Well, as you point out in the intro, we found these uh, concerns were there before the pandemic. Mm. And our group, um, separately from this uh, research, has studied the work environments of nurses for many years. And we have seen growing and worrisome trends. Nurses are reporting far more trouble in their workplace, far more staffing problems, uh, short of resources, uh, increased demands of the electronic health record. That has been continuing up in, in including the pandemic. Um, so it's, it's really no surprise that we've seen more trouble. What we haven't really seen are any solutions to help ease nurses' workloads. And as we know in COVID, things have only gotten worse.
0: Can you expand just a little bit on what that reality looks like, the, the, the increased workload for nurses? And I guess we're talking about a hospital setting in this case?
2: Interestingly, we study both hospital settings and outpatient settings. So I'm an oncology nurse, and we deliver over 80% of cancer care is delivered in the outpatient setting outside of a hospital. And we see similar trends for both nurses who work in hospitals, nurses who work in clinics, I'm particularly worried about nurses who work in schools. That has been an area where we have continued to um, have shortages of nurses working in schools. School nurses are asked to work in multiple schools at once. They're hopping from school to school in a given day. Mm -hmm. And again, in the pandemic, school nurses were sort of front and center as case counts climbed. So we see these concerns about staffing, about workload, about the onerous burdens on nurses, regardless of where they work, hospital, clinic, school, jail, et cetera.
0: Okay. And, and, and that is interesting. And the onerous burden that you refer to is, I mean, nurses go into this field to care for people. Are they feeling like they're not able to do that job well because they're asked to do all these other things that are not caring for people or that they're asked to care for too many people? Or what, what exactly creates an onerous burden for them?
2: Sure. So nurses are the last line of defense. As a nurse, if something filters through me, then it reaches the patient. So I'm the last line of defense for a patient safety concern. If I give the wrong medication, that's on me. If um, the the, the test procedure goes wrong, that's on me. Mm. So nurses hold that very carefully. And when there is a problem anywhere in the healthcare system, it is often the nurse who has to unclog that issue and resolve it and get the patient scheduled for another test, find another medication, uh, alert the doctor that something's gone wrong, and make sure that they get the help they need. So that pressure is there. I think what we're really worried about are nurses doing um, clerical work. We're, we're reporting in in some states, my colleagues have reported nurses doing sort of unnecessary uh, pr- things like transporting patients, like uh, helping patients with uh, feeding, uh, very basic things that other people can be doing. And then that clinical skill of a nurse is really being unused, mm-hmm. uh, but it's essential work. So how do we get the help around the nurses so that the nurse can focus on caring for the patient, identifying the problem, making sure that they get what they need in terms of health care?
0: And then for your female colleagues in nursing, you 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 would layer on more frequently than for male nurses. You would layer on the the pressures of home childcare, um, home home. To, you know, I guess the homework <laughs> that gets done um, more so than for male nurses. Is that right?
2: I think particularly in the United States, we we continue to have that general trend that oftentimes uh, in our households. Uh, women are assuming more and more of that work, not in every case, uh, but particularly with among nurses, uh, many nurses are working uh, multiple shifts, uh, days and evenings and nights, and and yet they still have the primary role of caring for children, caring for parents, uh, in my own case, uh, caring for parents who don't live with me, mm. uh, those kinds of things. So those, those burdens kind of carry forward. And, uh, you know, I think the other piece is, uh, and the question that we raise in the paper is, do nurses have the help they need to manage those stressors, or are they sort of suffering in silence?
0: Right. Because you found in your analysis, and again, this was data from before the pandemic, uh, you found that that women nurses are roughly twice as likely to die by suicide than the general female population in America. And that also female nurses are um, quite a bit more likely to die by suicide than female doctors, and we have certainly heard about the, the, the risks of suicide among physicians related to burnout and the stresses, some of the same stresses you've described, uh, you know, being short-staffed and having other more clerical responsibilities kind of dumped on top of you. Doctors are also facing those. Why then do you think nurses would be at an even higher uh, risk than, than female doctors?
2: I think with what might be going on here, and and first of all, I'm worried about my physician colleagues too, Mm -hmm. uh, particularly during the pandemic. And we've seen some tragic news reports of of physicians who have died by suicide during the pandemic. So I I don't wanna say it's not an issue there, but I think that increased added stressor, remember that uh, incomes are very different between nurses and physicians, and also their status within the hospital, their ability to influence decisions Um, either whether whether it's the hospital or another setting. Um, If a physician has a concern, they can often bring that to management, hopefully get that resolved, um, or they walk, right? They find another job. For nurses, that's not as easy. Uh, We see a lot of nurses staying in the same position because of the benefits, because of um, concerns of, of changing position. And so again, I think nurses more likely are suffering in silence and feel that they cannot get their concerns heard or acted on. Relative to our physician colleagues
0: there. So they might they they feel like they might be might not be able to get their work concerns um, addressed. Why not, though? I mean, these are these are people who work in in wellness. Um, why, Why would they not seek help for themselves for their own mental health if they're in crisis?
2: So there's a, a, an analogy I often use, I, I've worked in other areas of, of why don't nurses protect themselves in a variety of other circumstances. Mm-hmm. And the old adage I always say to a nurse is put your own mask on first before helping others. Um, time and time again, nurses run and rush to care for the patient in front of them, care for the other individual, at the risk of actually physically putting themselves at, at danger. And I think that same uh, concern it hits here in terms of mental health and mental health conditions there's a lot of shame and stigma if mm-hmm. one is to take a leave or seek treatment for mental health your health care provider you're a professional uh, why do you need help and i think an important take-home message of this paper is there is reason for you to be stressed there is reason for you to have difficulty and it is just like getting a calling a code blue for a patient call the code blue for yourself, get the help you need, the resources are there. I think the second piece of that is employers need to make sure that their employees, in this case, nurses, have easy, confidential access to that kind of help so that it doesn't come to their boss, they can reach outside of their work setting, get the help they need, get referrals, get resources. Um, There's been a little bit more of that work for physicians historically than there have been for nurses.
0: What else can hospitals do?
2: Well, I I guess
0: employers in general, since you mentioned it's not just hospitals, I guess school districts as well, but maybe the interventions would be different depending on the location.
2: I think, you know, our work has shown for over a decade now, nurses are are, uh, a substantial number of nurses are dissatisfied with their working conditions. Mm -hmm. And I think it's time for healthcare settings or wherever the nurses are working to really listen to those and create action plans to reduce the burden. What time and time again, one of the number one things even today with a project I'm working on, we heard repeatedly from nurses is the electronic health record is very difficult for nurses to operate it. it literally takes them away from taking care of patients. So in what way can we get the electronic health record to work better for nurses and patients rather than to be an added burden? A variety of other things we can do to eliminate the burden and allow nurses to do what they're supposed to do, which is monitor patients and take good care of them. I, th- I think the other piece that I'm concerned about is we don't have fundamental research on why we're seeing what we're seeing. Why are nurses, Why are female nurses twice as likely to die by suicide than the population? Why is that? And a lot of the suicide research that's done focuses on other groups, rural uh, Americans, teenagers and adolescents, children. We don't have any funded research by the federal government to understand what are the specific issues for nurses? Is there a specific setting where it's greater risk shift work? Mm. And so without that fundamental information, it's really hard to create interventions that are gonna work for them.
0: Christopher Fries is a professor of nursing and health management at the University of Michigan. He's a nurse himself. Thanks for your time today, Professor, I appreciate it.
2: Great to be with you, thanks.
0: And that National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is available 24 hours a day free of charge if you or someone you know is in crisis. That number is 800-273-8255. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. This is Top of Mind. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Julie Rose. Apps like Depop turned a new generation onto the side hustle of buying stuff at thrift stores and reselling it as vintage. I use that term loosely. Apparently, there are lots of people out there willing to pay 200 bucks for a regular old pair of pants that date back to the 90s, so not even that old, that cost maybe $5 to buy at Goodwill or some other thrift store. So now these Gen Z fashion flippers are catching flack for gentrifying thrifting at the expense of people who shop secondhand out of financial necessity. The real scandal here, though, is much deeper, and it's rooted in the history of thrift stores in America. Jennifer Lizotte has studied that history, and she joins me now from UNC Wilmington, where she's a professor of history. Professor Lizotte, welcome. Thanks for your time. Hi, thanks. Glad to be here, Julie. Uh, let's start first with this uh, latest kind of like scandal on social media, on TikTok, <laughs> about um, about the harm. What's the alleged harm people are doing when they buy armloads of stuff for cheap at a thrift store and then they go home and like model it and style it and then mark it up for a ridiculous sale online?
3: Well, I mean... The whole kind of issue of whether or not this is a legitimate form of capitalist practice aside, um, I think that the outrage and the kind of claims of gentrification all stem from this myth of what purpose thrift stores and secondhand clothing in general serves in society that's long-sustaining, and that is that it's, you know, um, providing... Uh, wares for those who are unable to buy them on the first hand market. Right. And so these young entrepreneurs are taking away resources from those who truly need them.
0: But the idea that thrift stores exist for poor people who can't buy clothes new is a myth, you say.
3: Yes, I would maintain that. I think that um, that may have been one of the central purposes um, and the foundation of thrift stores which dates back into the late 19th, early 20th century. But even then, that was a sort of appropriative model because secondhand clothing was sold before them um, by... Impoverished pushcart sellers, who many times were part of the Jewish diaspora in the United States and in Europe, and so were unable to get professionalized jobs because of anti-Semitism.
0: Oh, okay. Let's can can we um, parse that history just a little more because that's really interesting. So before there were thrift stores, mm-hmm. uh, as we know them today, <laughs> where yeah. people donate stuff they don't want. And then you can go in and buy it. Um, Before there was that, there were people trading and hawking like flea market style, I guess, um, used wares. Right. Okay. And and that and but but the reason why that was especially common was that was an income and a and a race thing that uh, that was going on.
3: Absolutely. They were often called old clothes men, right? And they would have a call. They'd say, old clothes, old clothes, and they'd have push carts. And this originated among Jewish diaspora in Europe and came over to the United States in the you know mid to late 19th century when urbanization started to consolidate enough people so that there's a market for this, right? So, I mean you know, peripatetic salespeople are, you know, a much older even history, but for the focus on old clothes, that was a specific demographic in the United States, particularly, specifically in New York City and Chicago, but other cities as well.
0: And then when did an actual thrift store start to be a thing?
3: Well, they weren't called thrift stores until the 1920s. Before that, they were often emphasized their social, they were called social service stores or various other names. I think the shift from the 1920s to the Appalachian thrift stores is really trying to appeal more to the consumers, to those who are buying the clothes or targeting or broadening the consumer audience. Hang on, hang
0: on. Before you go any further, so before the 1920s, though, these stores were opened when you called them, they weren't called thrift stores, but they were opened for what purpose and by whom?
3: Right. Um, Social service stores was one most common name for it, okay. Salvation Army and Goodwill are the two primary um, um, sort of uh, leaders in this movement in the late 19th, but really like the last couple of years of the 19th century in the US. Salvation Army began this movement okay. in England um, of a decade or so earlier. Now, there were some. And before were they for. What was the purpose? um, They were to provide both work and clothing for um, poorer people who didn't have the means to buy them firsthand. Okay. Of, Of course, most articles of clothing were much more expensive than they are today. Um, So it was harder to legitimately get clothing. So this was um, a, a representation of changing ideas of charitable giving, right? So the older model might have been, you donate your old clothes to your church, and they directly distribute them to poor people who could benefit from them. Right. And sort of the ideas about about charity and direct giving changed along with things like social Darwinism and the idea that, you know, we're not benefiting mankind by just simply giving things Mm. to the poor. We're perpetuating um, the system that way. But if we can show that they're the deserving poor, in other words, if they will pay a nominal fee or even better, work for it, right, through Salvation Army, um, they had certain various models of, like, workhouses and uh, goodwill industries, as it became known, also had that model of, well, if you come and work for us or at least sort the clothing or something, you can also um, earn enough to buy the clothing. And right?
0: and so then moving ahead into time, then... Um, what's, what's the important shift that takes place like after the 1920s when these be- start being called thrift stores?
3: Well, I think that they started to recognize that they had a broader audience than just those people, a sort of voluntary consumer audience, right? Mm-hmm. So not just people who couldn't afford to buy new clothing. And this is an escalating um, sort of demographic throughout the 20th century as, number one, new clothing becomes more accessible, more varied and cheaper, Right. These are all due to changes in uh, population density, changes in um, production, mass production of clothing, changes in labor laws and so forth. Right. That makes clothes cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. Right. right. Definitely accelerating in the late 20th into the 21st century. And that drives people to shop at thrift stores. Why? <laughs> because, first of all, it increases donations because the one thing thrift store did was it, it encouraged Let's say middle-class housewives to donate clothing that was still useful, right? So we have this kind of model of thrift in the United States, where um, you know, in the 1880s, for example, a middling-class housewife, if her shirt kind of wore out, she would turn it into a pinafore for her daughter, and after that got a few holes or stains that were unremediable, she might use it to stuff a cushion, right? Mm -hmm. But as you progress into the 20th century, clothing um, becomes cheaper and a little bit more accessible, but there's still this kind of ideology of thrift, like, I can't just throw away a shirt hmm. that's still useful, even if it's not fashionable. Um, but then thrift stores start to say, no, you are helping others. You are donating. This We're going to call ourselves thrift stores, so we are part of this. We're kind of appropriating this model of thrift. So then you get Housewives, to be stereotypical, but that certainly was the prime donator and definitely the target of donating campaigns for Goodwill Goodwill and Salvation Army, um, who are being told, or who are thinking to themselves, right? I really would like to buy a new wardrobe, but my clothing hasn't worn out. Oh, hey! If I donate it, I'm actually being virtuous because I'm helping immigrants and uh, working class people who can't afford this clothing. And my clothing is still nice and viable, so I'm doing an even better job. Oh, so it's shopping. a
0: it's a just justif, in some ways a a, a way to justify. More consumption by
3: yes.
0: by putting the stuff that you're tired of to good use, but not feeling guilty that you threw it away before it was, you know, worn down.
3: And that addresses another prime myth of thrift shopping or secondhand clothing in general. And that is that in various ways, it kind of goes outside the, you know, kind of damning attributes of firsthand capitalism mm. when actually it's directly related to it. Meaning? Well, so you get donating, you get an accelerating fashion system, mm-hmm. right? And those who are donating clothes to thrift stores or buying clothes from thrift stores are still, even if they're unaware of it, participating in that accelerating system because they're adding variety. They're justifying um, the uh, speeding up of firsthand clothing distribution. They're fueling the whole thing. It's not a separate system. It's definitely part of it. Even before voluntary consumers blew up in the, let's say, post-World War II years, you know, people who could buy new clothes, but they chose to buy secondhand clothes for a variety of cultural reasons.
0: So today you have, I mean, anyone who goes to a thrift store in America today will know this. If you've looked closely at the labels, you've got like a lot of the stuff on the racks is actually what we call fast fashion, Mm -hmm. right? It's, you know, lower quality, very inexpensive, trendy stuff that you could buy at H&M or... For not much more than they're going to sell it on the rack. Right. (laughs) And which I'm always, I'm looking at that and I'm thinking, okay, so what is, what's the calculus here where you, and do, do you think it is a situation where people, it's so cheap to buy something now off of some of these websites or these fast fashion stores that, that that really these thrift stores have become a way it's still the place you can send the stuff that you're tired of because you can go buy another 5 or 10 dollar shirt <laughs> from H&M and so it just is it it's only just accelerating you know the desire for something new and here's a convenient way to get rid of what's in my closet
3: right and it's a, it's related to what people call wish cycling right where you throw everything in the recycling bin because you you think that if you do that even if it is made out of components that are not recyclable you're still doing an environmental good, right? Mm -hmm. So if you donate something that you are no longer interested in wearing because you were only going to wear it for two weeks anyway, because that's your cultivated perception of fashion cycle, right? It's okay because you're donating it. When in reality, it's been decades since literal tons of secondhand clothing is finds its way not only into landfills, but sold in bulk overseas through big corporate companies that manage this draft from American consumers.
0: It goes to landfills?
3: Yes. So a lot there. So if you donate your clothes to thrift stores, sure, it may end up on the backs of somebody who's very appreciative of it and having access to it. It's actually statistically more likely that it will either be sold in bulk overseas for various distribution reasons or just end up in landfills. There's sorting processes that happen at any large scale thrift stores where Um, Even before they ever make it to the racks, lots of clothing is discarded, right? Mm. So, you know, it's another form of wish cycling if somebody donates stained or torn or otherwise clearly undesirable clothing to Goodwill and Salvation Army, and they get buckets of that stuff, right? So some of that can be made into kind of cloths that can be recycled or sold in bulk for other uh, industrial purposes, but a lot of it does just simply end up in landfills.
0: And it doesn't help, of course, that a lot of the stuff that's getting donated to thrift stores now is this fast fashion, lower quality stuff that
3: you know that is going so to be less durable anyway. Free washings anyway. Yeah. <laughs> it really isn't designed to.
0: Well, okay, so back to where we started. Then the I, to some extent, the, the these young people who like go in and buy armloads and armloads of stuff that might otherwise you know end up at a landfill, and they figure out how to turn some of it for a hefty profit, it's like, good for you, you know? Cause... I mean, I
3: think there's an argument to be made for that. I am skeptical of the claim that they're robbing other people of the opportunity to buy their buy uh, clothes. First of all, my understanding, and I'm, I do not have a um, very vivid presence on TikTok, mm-hmm. but my understanding is that a lot of these clothes, clothing is being remade into something trendy um, that is, and and they come from clothing that is not typical professional wares anyway. So this kind of gentrification argument that you're robbing people who need this clothing to be upwardly mobile is, is sort of species to me. I'm, yeah. I, I'm not I'm not necessarily buying it. <laughs>
0: and so what would you say finally, Professor Lazart? is is there a responsible way to donate and pur- purchase from thrift
3: stores? Yeah, I do think there is, but I think you. It, for me, if you are doing it depends on your motivation. If you're doing this because you want to embrace values of environmentalism and anti capitalism, then buying an accelerating number of clothing because you can afford more articles of clothing because you're buying secondhand clearly does not fit that model. So you have to continue to be a thoughtful consumer. Maybe look at brands that are sustainable, right, or that do pay laborers fair wages, even if you're not, don't see yourself as a direct part of that chain, right? Um, Because if you are still contributing to buying fast fashion and appearing in public and, you know, fueling The desire, fashion is a very public thing, you know, so whatever you wear is perceived. There are several ways in which you're contributing to capitalism, not just by where and how you buy, but by your very presentation and owning of these clothes. Mm -hmm. So you're not escaping that circle. So just thinking about the meaning of clothing, (laughs) I think, really helps. And thinking about what your values are surrounding clothing, either the purchase of it or the wearing of it. Um, is a start.
0: The sustainable uh, idea then is you, you buy what you wear and mm-hmm. wear it often and wear it out yeah. and then buy something else that you can wear for a long time, I guess.
3: Right. And be a representative of your values by what you put on your back, a mm-hmm. visual one.
0: Yeah. Which, if you got to have a new look on Instagram every other day, that's not really going to work. So I guess you got (laughs) to rethink that lifestyle. (laughs) Jennifer Lazat, thanks a lot for your time. I appreciate it. Oh, no problem. This was fun. Thank you. Jennifer Lazat is a professor of history at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington. And her books include From Goodwill to Grunge, a history of secondhand styles and alternative economies. Top of Mind is a production of BYU Radio. And that's it for today's episode of Carefully Curated Conversations from the Archive. I'm Julie Rose. We'll talk soon.